I'm the king of the world! Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this time with the second chapter in our ongoing Arnold's Collaborator series, this time on James Cameron. Well, it's officially ongoing, mm-hmm. given that it's our second episode. Our last one was on Andrew Vanya, and it was uh, well-received, so we decided to delve a little bit deeper into the people who Arnold works with frequently. And I think who else is really more prominent in the career of Arnold than James Cameron? When you really, I think, ask the average Arnold fan of the collaborators, who's the one that jumps out the most? I think James Cameron, because just the movies he's been associated with, with uh, Arnold. Yeah, well, what happens if you ask an above-average Arnold fan? Well, I think they might say something like uh, Andrew Vanya. Or Sven Oli Thorsen. Or maybe even Mario Kassar. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but James Cameron's on the menu tonight, folks. That's right. And it is going to be a full course because the career of James Cameron is really like, it's, he's not a prolific guy, but the breadth of his work, it's just, there's so much to it. It's so expansive just in terms of its vision and the evolution he's gone on over the course of his career. And the, that there's it, a lot to talk about. And the influence that his direction yeah. and his work in Hollywood has had on other films. Yeah, and he's a countryman of ours. He was born in Ontario, Canada in 1954. I don't think he spends too much time north of the border these days. No, he splits his time between uh, the U.S. and New Zealand. Apparently, he was going to become a U.S. citizen, but after uh, George W. Bush got in in 2004, he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I read that somewhere as well. Yeah, so, you know, he starts out with very humble roots. Am I right? Well, I don't know if I'd call the roots humble, Cam. In some ways, they're kind of the classic path of um, people to get into Hollywood. Starting true. With, starting with his education. So he enrolled in Fullerton College with the intention of studying physics. And he blamed his teacher later and said he had a bad teacher, even though he was an amazing student. (laughs) And he decided to switch his major over to English. And I think right there, that is the interesting dichotomy of James Cameron. Someone obsessed with, like, the sciences versus the arts. Like, bouncing back and forth. And you see that, I think, over his entire career trajectory. Mm -hmm. He's definitely a a man with uh, what we call a breadth of interests. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in many ways... Like, those scientific roots have followed him throughout his career. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, he drops out of school. It was a two-year program, but he dropped out and just went to become, like, a truck driver. But in 1977, James Cameron sees Star Wars. And suddenly the light bulb goes off, and he's like, I want to do that. And, And from there, he, I mean, he, at that point, wasn't involved in any kind of formal schooling. But uh, he's been quoted before as saying that he just basically would go to the library and digest anything that he could about film, and especially the technical aspects of film. You know, how film was colored, uh, what types of film they would use, how to expose the film, that, that sort of thing. And got really a technical education on his own, at least according to, to James Cameron. Ultimately, he goes ahead and he creates... A short film in 1978 by the name of Xenogenesis. Have you seen it? 
No, I haven't. Have you? I made the effort of watching it yesterday, and um, it's really interesting. I, I can't say it's the most entertaining thing in the world, but James Cameron in 1978, and he said he financed this thing with basically money from uh, California dentists who were looking for a tax write-off. And uh, I feel it, like a lot of films get financed yeah, in that way. Yeah, short films, come on. If you watch this, and I recommend everyone watch it, it's only like 10 minutes long, but you see James Cameron's entire career being set up in this 10-minute short. It's about uh, you know a, a female character and then a robot man journeying around in space and then encountering a giant robot that they have to battle with. The robot looks eerily like the first version of the Terminator in Terminator 3. You remember that? The one with the tire treads? Mm -hmm. I swear that Terminator 3 took their design from this short. And just as a tribute to James Cameron, I think, because that's obviously not a James Cameron production. But then also, the the short ends with a battle between this the, the female character in like sort of like a big industrial robot type suit. And it is very, very much like the battle between the Queen Alien and Ripley at the end of Aliens. Now, at any point, does she or the alien get on the largest ocean liner ever built and sink to the bottom of the ocean after hitting an iceberg? <laughs> well, it ends on a cliffhanger, so maybe, maybe. <laughs> but he also makes this movie with a collaborator named William Wisher, who stars in the film. And William Wisher would go on to write Terminator 2, as well as I think he did a couple other things as well. We'll, we'll call it co-write. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, like, the short's really interesting, and I recommend people see it. And, you know, Tony, he obviously got some work off that short, probably. And from there he went to work with Roger Corman, who is probably most famous for making a lot of money off of really low-budget films. And uh, ultimately giving, the, giving a start to... Tons and tons and tons of people uh, who became very successful in Hollywood. Roger Corman was kind of the, um, it was like the advanced school for Hollywood interns. Yeah, like I actually just recently watched the original 1960 Little Shop of Horrors that he, that was a production under his name. And like that movie is one of the early roles for Jack Nicholson, for example. Yeah, I mean, other names on that list include Ron Howard, um, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, William Shatner, of all people, and, and, and dozens and dozens more. I, I mean, Roger Corman's movies were a jumping off point for all kinds of people, including James Cameron. Mm -hmm. Now, what are some of the productions he worked on for Corman? Well, James Cameron started actually as, I think, a production assistant, um, but eventually, you know, doing some visual effects and that kind of thing for generally the Corman esque, well, it would not just Corman esque, the actual Corman productions of Battle Beyond the Stars, which was a Star Wars space opera ripoff. Have you seen it? Uh, I have, actually. How is it? I've always wanted to see it, but I could never find a copy of it around. It's it's pretty enjoyable. I, I've i got a soft spot in my heart for uh, schlocky sci-fi and mage exploitation movies. So right. uh, Roger Corman's pretty high up on my list when, when there's something to throw on. And, then another, and another maybe less space opery, but definitely schlocky sci-fi, Galaxy of Terror. In the meantime, he also worked. He did some work with um, John Carpenter on Escape from New York. If you remember the um, some of the vector graphics yep. when he's flying in, yep. uh, allegedly that was James Cameron putting reflective tape on miniature New York models and then <laughs> turning the lights off because it was too expensive to do computer graphics at the time. <laughs> he also worked on Rock and Roll High School, I believe, as a production assistant, which was a movie with the Ramones. 
That's right. And and ultimately, all of that led up to um, him allegedly working as a director, although the stories are somewhat sketchy here yeah. and there on um, Piranha 2, The Spawning, which James Cameron himself has at least acknowledged as the greatest flying piranha movie ever made. <laughs> now, have you seen the original Piranha, which was a Joe Dante movie? I think that's under the Corman banner, too. I love the original Piranha movie. Yeah, it's really fun. It's it's hilarious. Piranha 2 kind of delves into that so bad it's good category without ever really getting good. Yeah, you know, like Piranha 2, and uh, there's been a lot of debates back and forth about how much James Cameron actually did on it. It was produced by a guy named Ovidio G. Asinaitis. Um, which sounds like a condition, <laughs> that last name. It's it's an awkward name. But, um, you know, he was the producer on Piranha 2, and he brought James Cameron on and just proceeded to clash with him the entire shoot. He wouldn't show James Cameron any of the dailies. He wanted control over those. And then he, you know, kept demanding certain shots from James Cameron that James Cameron, even at this point in time, was very specific about what he wanted. And James Cameron does not just phone it in. And this is a cheap production that they wanted cranked out quickly. And ultimately what happened was the producer ran James Cameron off the set, said, you're fired, whatever, I'll take over the movie. James Cameron said that he realized later, delving into the history of this guy, he did this with all his directors. It was more of he would just put these guys out there as his directors to get financing and then fire them and then direct himself. And James Cameron's story goes, broke into the editing room one night and edited his own version of Piranha 2 not so much for release, but because he wasn't sure if he could be a director. And, he, and this guy had told him, you're not talented, you can't do it. And James Cameron said he was worried this guy was right. So he went in, edited this whole thing together, and said, you know what? I am pretty good. <laughs> and then left. Well, I've heard conflicting stories about that. I think there's a lot of conflicting uh, stories. Because I, I saw Lance Henriksen in person do a panel, and he's the star of Piranha 2 The Spawning. And he was like, well, I think James Cameron was on there like three days. So... And without turning this into a Piranha 2 episode... Wait, this isn't the Piranha 2 episode? I mean, let's turn it into a Piranha 2 episode. <laughs> but uh, there's James Cameron himself has also said that he didn't break into the yeah, uh, ed editing room. But... I have a video, though, that I just watched interview with him <laughs> saying he broke in. So I think he goes back and forth on that one. Yeah, I've also heard that he was um, brought in to relieve a director who was fired and then was then fired himself... But then was kept on in special effects because of some of the work that he did in, I think it was Galaxy of Terror or Battle Beyond the Stars, where he basically slept on set and made spaceships out of McDonald's containers <laughs> uh, that that looked fairly good given the budget. What I find the most interesting about Piranha 2 is that it may be the most hotly contested and debated movie of James Cameron's career. Just trying to figure <laughs> out what exactly he did on that movie. Like, it really is this... Weird movie in that no one watches this movie. Like, Piranha 2 is not well-remembered. The original Piranha is, is still held up as a cult film. Piranha 2 is not really. And yet people constantly talk about Piranha 2 only because of James Cameron. That, yeah, that's right. I mean, why not? Uh, and, and I think it's like, it's a terrible movie. Like, I, I genuinely don't think Piranha 2 is really that watchable. But you see in these, these early films, um, primarily, at least the ones I've seen, which is Battle Beyond the Stars... Galaxy of Terror, and I guess to uh, I've seen Escape from New York and uh, and Piranha Two actually. Right. Uh, you see him start to you know bring the band together because uh, yeah. there's he starts working with some of these uh, collaborators of his. Um, he works with uh, James Horner in Battle Beyond the Stars, mm -hmm. as well as uh, 
Earl Bowen, who is much <laughs> much maligned on the Terminator episode of our podcast. It's probably the part of our podcast I feel the worst about. Earl Bowen's not a <laughs> unfairly. Bag. Unfairly. We, we were having fun. We actually like Earl Bowen. <laughs> uh, and, of course, Lance Henriksen, who he worked with in... Uh, Terminator. Terminator and yep. Uh, Aliens. Yep. And... Um, and so he gets he starts getting these contacts with fairly talented, well-known people. Uh, not to say that he didn't have maybe some clashes with them later on in his career. Right. But, uh, you know, you really start to see James Cameron's filmography taking shape, which would eventually pave the way for uh, the movie The Terminator. He did, a right. no, did another little movie called Android. I haven't seen. I can't really say anything about it. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't, no. And, you know, it's funny. The Piranha 2 situation, It's a, he said he really learned from that experience that he had to do his own stuff for, moving forward. He just could not work for other people, cranking out their vision, you know, basically being a journeyman. He knew he had to do his own thing. And while he was uh, on set, you know, with Piranha 2, he got, like, food poisoning or something. or got very ill and had a fever dream that basically inspired the idea of Terminator, of like a mechanical man hunting. And it's funny because you already see those ideas in uh, Xenogenesis, so I really question how much of that is made up as well. Because <laughs> it really does feel like an evolution of what he's doing in Xenogenesis. Yeah, isn't that kind of the classic thing when someone makes it and someone's asked about like, oh, how, how did you get started? It's just like, it's like oh, oh, there was a dream. I had a fever dream. It came to me in a vision. Yeah, it was it, all meant to be. It was destiny. Yeah, though my mind was clear, my hand moved, and when I woke up, there was the finished script before me. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you got to wonder how factual this is. But So he does this Android movie in 1982, and then he starts uh, writing the script for the Terminator and starts shopping it around. He obviously had a little bit of experience selling... Uh, screenplays the dentists at this point so he knew sure. what was involved in in getting a movie produced and so he starts shopping it around to different producers um, on the condition that he gets to direct it so apparently there were a number of studios or producers who were interested in buying the script from him um, but none of them wanted to take a flyer on uh, the director of Piranha 2. Yeah, and you can't really blame them. And we really go into depth on this in our Terminator episode that we recommend everyone listen to about all the development of Terminator, which was mm -hmm. crazy. He ultimately sells the script um, for, for a dollar. I should say it's not, it wasn't just him working on the script. Another person by the name of Gail Ann Hurd, who's a, uh, a Hollywood big shot as well, who's done all kinds of stuff. And soon to be his wife. Yeah, soon to be his wife. <laughs> I'd be remiss not to mention that. Um so he sells the script finally for uh, a dollar to the Hemdale Corporation, uh, who has a had a storied history of making Terminator-like films, we'll call them. Those, right. you know, low-budget sci-fi films. And, and they buy it off him, and they say, okay, well, here, thanks for the script. You can direct. Here's uh, whatever it was, seven million bucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he uh, starts uh, doing screen tests and uh, auditions for the for the parts in the movie. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading an interview with Schwarzenegger where he talked about meeting James Cameron for the first time, and he said that James Cameron was one of the most down-to-earth, like, realistic directors he'd ever met, where so many of the people he'd met with were kind of the, you know, kind of head-in-the-clouds types who were, you know, present visions that maybe weren't that achievable. But he said Cameron spoke in a way that he could be like, yeah, that makes sense. I understand how we're going to do this. Basically, Cameron... Even in his movies, he's all about process, 
logistics. All his movies have very complicated ideas that he is able to convey very simply. It's one of his greatest talents, I think. Probably going back to, in part to that scientific Mm -hmm. background of his. Yeah. uh, Very methodical. Yeah, he probably would have been a good science teacher. Probably. He probably would have been a good scientist. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so he gets Arnold, and the resulting film, The Terminator, puts him on the map. And we talk about The Terminator at length in our episode. I really recommend that one. It was a really good episode we did, I think. But, um, you know, what does The Terminator to you, like, mean for James Cameron? Yeah, I mean, Terminator obviously was a huge launching point for James Cameron. And it's really that point in his career where he showed that, um, one, he was ruthlessly efficient with his budget Mm -hmm. Uh, he did not have a lot of budget to play with and obviously some of the work that he had done on previous films had really drilled home the importance of you know having your stuff together and and knowing what you were doing before you started spending money on it i don't know if that really held up in later years once he started getting (laughs) uh literally hundred million dollar budgets but this movie was where you really start to see that James Cameron could take a movie and just spin it into gold. Right. And, and that was so important for him along with um, his follow-up, Aliens. Mm-hmm. Those two movies probably gave him license to to do what he does today, which is basically just have people throw money at him and uh, give him full license to do whatever he wants. When I look at The Terminator, what I find the most interesting about it is... It really is kind of the heart of what James Cameron would do going forward and that it's this meshing of a very human story, which is, you know, the relationship between Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor um, with something that's grand sci-fi technology based, which is, you know, obviously the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator character as well as all the time travel stuff. And just managing to make this feel like such an organic merging of the two. Like, it doesn't feel like he's hammering, you know, a square peg through a round hole. It really just feels very natural. And he's able to convey it in a way that feels so simple. Like, you know, the movie The Terminator, hand this off to a hacky director. Can you imagine how painful this movie would be just in terms of all the logistics, of all the bits and parts that have to be explained just to get to that human story? Yeah, I mean, I've I've watched movies like that. Yeah, I think we both, yeah, tons of them. In fact, uh, some of them are Terminator sequels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a guy who really likes, like I say, schlocky sci-fi, yeah. there is no shortage of bad android movies out there. Yeah, but even like, a simp- I've seen simple action movies where they have to convey like a guy has to walk around a block and they can't even do that properly. And yet the Terminator achieves so much on this small budget um, and affects work that considering how much money they had, is pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And that goes a little bit to um, probably the breadth of James Cameron's experience again, where except for acting, I mean, this guy does it all. Yeah, there was a, a crew member interviewed in, I believe it was the Making of the Aliens uh, documentary on the Blu-ray, where he basically said, like, the problem with James Cameron in terms of being a collaborator, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about James Cameron's onset uh, <laughs> um, sort of uh, fame, uh, if you will, but uh, or infamy. But um, he said part of the problem is that James Cameron can do everyone's job better than they can. And so it's him being impatient a lot of the time because, well, hey, I can do these effects in quicker time than you can. So what's the problem? Yeah, and the only reason he doesn't is because he's too busy. Yeah, exactly. Like, you really get the sense James Cameron is a genius. Like, it's not even a question mark. 
Yeah, no, he he de- he definitely is. Like, uh, can you it... imagine Tony, for example, if you went to study special effects in a library for six months, what could you make after that? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I don't like where this is going, <laughs> where we name someone as a genius, <laughs> then say, well, what could you do, Tony, um, with your subpar intelligence? <laughs> But uh, look, it, we're, it, we're it, all subpar compared but, to James Cameron. But the answer is probably Carnosaur, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe a Piranha too. Which was, an, I think, another Roger Corman production. Actually, <laughs> Carnosaur being the the film we reference on Arnie Geddon for uh, particularly bad CG. Sure, sure. But <laughs> I'm still I, I'm still waiting for that to catch on in pop culture. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a little late for Carnosaur, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but Terminator is a huge hit, and brings him into aliens it'd be a shame it would be a shame to mention mm. that uh terminator also brought him into contact with not only his second wife but also his third wife linda hamilton right and that relationship would be waiting just a little bit down the road yes <laughs> um but at the same time that he's writing terminator he's working on two other scripts right yeah yeah he's doing a uh, rambo 2 which, you know, is a movie that I have a great fondness for. And I know you're looking at me because I got the title wrong. It's Rambo First Blood Part 2. But um, <laughs> that one is a weird one in that he wrote the screenplay, but Sylvester Stallone rewrote it all. And apparently it bears almost no connection to what James Cameron wrote. Although, James Cameron did win a Razzie Award for Worst Screenplay for that film. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. But what a weird footnote in James Cameron's career. It is. To, to be a, a screenwriter on Rambo 2. Do you see any of James Cameron in Rambo 2? Uh, no, I don't really. I mean, I guess you could say like some of the military jargon, working that in. But even that, you don't get a lot of that kind of that roughneck. Like in a lot of the movies we're going to talk about going forward, you have these like groups. We're going to talk about the, them with aliens, obviously. But like, you don't get a lot of that group dynamic in Rambo even. So I do wonder maybe what his screenplay would have had. No, it's definitely missing um, Bill Paxton and a strong female character. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. But, you know, aside from that footnote, uh, yeah, he goes ahead and does Aliens, which I frequently cite as my uh, favorite non-Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, action movie of all time. It's damn good. And he's an interesting choice to follow up Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott was fresh off the movie The Duelists, when he did Alien, so he wasn't like a huge brand at that point. And, you know, he blew up with that one. And so it's really eerie how the Alien producers were always able to grab these guys right before they exploded. Like, these, the greatest directors of their generation, the Alien franchise would get them, and they would, you know, grab David Fincher later down the road as well. Like, it's pretty impressive. And, you know, Aliens is a movie that's also kind of near and dear to my heart, but what is your experiences with the movie Aliens? Oh, it's just, I mean, it's spectacular. It's just, I mean, you see a lot of the Terminator in Aliens. But, I mean, James Cameron took Ridley Scott and H.R. Geiger's original film, which was really uh, a sci-fi horror movie. Yeah. And kept those horror elements, but just turned it into uh, an absolute action bloodbath. And it's, it is spectacular. There's kind of an apocryphal story. I think I don't think it actually happened. Kind of like the Terminator fever dream. <laughs> but um, uh, there's a story that when James Cameron went in to meet about potentially doing aliens, he went over to the to like the chalkboard or whatever, the whiteboard, whatever they had in the studio office, and wrote the word alien. And they were like, oh, okay, okay. And then he put an S on the end. And they went, 
Okay. And then he drew two lines through the S to make the dollar sign. <laughs> and the producers were like, bravo, young man. <laughs> yeah, well, and you see, you see James Cameron here working as well. I mean, he's obviously got uh, Sigourney Weaver, who's amazing. Probably, you know... She got an Oscar nomination for this movie. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's hard to think of a more powerful female action lead except maybe Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Yeah. Right? It's a really great evolution of the Ripley character. And, you know, we had this fantastic performance from uh, Linda Hamilton in Terminator. But you really do see James Cameron, you know, planting... The, again, James Cameron's so fascinating because he keeps revisiting... The similar tropes and ideas over and over again. And we see him planting these seeds of these strong female characters in Terminator, but going that extra step more with Ripley in Aliens, and even with Vasquez as well. And suddenly you have these things that become just part of the collection of the ideas that swirl around James Cameron's head that he keeps coming back to. And Aliens really does bring everything together. You're getting these nods back to that Xenogenesis finale, with the uh, the power loader versus the queen alien you are getting a lot of the technology you've got the human story of ripley and newt this mother-daughter relationship you have the roughneck you know kind of dialogue going back and forth which really comes into play here and probably most importantly mm -hmm. you have bill paxton yeah uh, well we did have bill paxton in terminator uh yeah we did have bill paxton terminator and apparently him i just uh, i know we're kind of Going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but apparently James Cameron and Bill Paxton met on one of those early sci-fi movies, Galaxy of Terror or uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, or maybe Escape from New York. And Bill Paxton was a was a you know a set grunt. He was a carpenter of some kind who, right. who kept people laughing. Yeah. And uh, James Cameron saw to uh, to cast him going forward in a whole bunch of his movies. Now, what interests me a lot about James Cameron, I guess, is two things that I want to point out now, and that James Cameron is often criticized for two things. One is his quote-unquote clunky writing, and two is his very um, troublesome history of dealing with actors. And I think in Aliens, you have this perfect film in many ways, which has A, great performances across the board, and B, I think a really strong script. So I, I don't really see the weaknesses you would see going forward. Like, we're going to talk about some movies coming up that I have some real issues with James Cameron's writing. But I do feel like he was on fire at this point in time. And I don't know. Like, it doesn't... I don't feel like he's kind of gotten some of the bad habits yet. Like, this movie feels perfectly, like, sparse in terms of the dialogue needed. It never feels like there's too much. He has quippy, fun lines when he needs to. He gets across his, you know, exposition better than just about any director working. We're not talking about the director's cut here, right? <laughs> we are not. Let's. I want to mention that in a second. But... You know, I, I feel like he really gets all these great performances. It seems to everything I've heard, it, the issues more on the set of Aliens were with the crew, which was a British crew. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. And again, uh, you know, with no way to verify this. Most of the reports come from James Cameron himself. Who yeah. In some ways, is just, you know, chiseling his own James Cameron statue out of a yeah. chunk of marble. The but legend goes that, yeah, the British crews just have a different union there. They don't work the, you know, say 16-hour days that American crews do. Um, they have more built-in breaks, and James Cameron, when he was there, they would have built-in, you know, tea breaks and all that sort of stuff. And James Cameron is a go-go-go kind of guy. He wants to do long days and just keep going. And the crew wouldn't put up with it. And so there was a lot of tensions. And uh, it took a while. And the story was that, like, you know, kind of had, like, a real issue halfway through or so. 
they managed to patch things up and James Cameron got them to the end. And then he kind of like basically gave them a big screw you at the end and said he would never work with any of them again. Yeah. I got to wonder, how do you figure James Cameron got the director seat in in Aliens? I, I'm wondering if that goes back to if him and John Carpenter uh, had any connection at this point after his work on Escape from New York um, and whether, you know, there was an introduction there with Dan O'Bannon or anything like that who did a lot of the effects on Aliens. I just think the Terminator was too big to ignore. I think that movie was such a calling card movie. You have Arnold instantly, you know, catapulted into an icon status. He's doing effects work that's thrilling and exciting and action that's phenomenal on a very low budget. So I'm sure they were just like, what could this guy do with some extra money? And, you know, another and, thing and that... Paul Reiser. And Paul Reiser. <laughs> and another thing that Aliens does that James Cameron would become known for, I mean, Terminator does it too, but Aliens maybe to a greater degree, is the world building. It's just this great expansive universe that is entirely coherent to the viewer. You know, like, I think of a movie like Warcraft that came out a couple years ago. Like, <laughs> no, don't think of that movie. <laughs> but that movie tries to create a whole universe for, you know, a film-going audience. And I found it one of the most confusing movies ever. Whereas, like, James Cameron probably could have communicated the ideas of that universe to me in about ten minutes of screen time. <laughs> I find it funny that you use a movie that probably no one listening has seen as a, as a reference to... It's one that jumps out at the moment. <laughs> For you, is Aliens the best of the franchise, of the Alien franchise? Hard to say. I mean, I love the first Alien, and, uh, you know, it's definitely better than the, the Alien vs. Predator, uh, sure. put it that way. Um, but, I mean, as far as a, an action sci-fi movie goes, mm -hmm. it's hard to think of a better movie than... Aliens, you know, and the ones that you do think of are generally also James Cameron, Terminator. I was going to say, Terminator yeah. 2 um, in particular. Right, yeah. Or the, even the first Terminator. But yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, Aliens just on a bigger scale than the first Terminator for sure. But no, I agree 100%. And, you know, you referenced the director's cut earlier. James Cameron has always said the theatrical version is the final version. The director's cuts are more just kind of for the fans to get something out of. But which do you prefer between the two? Because the Aliens director's cut, for those that don't know, is significantly longer, features a long prologue set on the colony before it's invaded by aliens, and has a few little bits and pieces strewn throughout. So which do you prefer? I definitely prefer the theatrical cut. It, it, I mean, except for there's a couple scenes uh, involving sentry guns that add a little bit more carnage and a little bit more action. Uh those are all right. Uh, they don't take anything away. I don't know how much they add. Mm -hmm. um, but I really didn't need a big prologue about Newt's parents. And if anything, it takes away from the pacing of the movie and the intensity of the movie. I agree. Like, I don't like that director's cut for that reason. I think the prologue is somewhat of a disaster for the movie's pacing. But I do like the sentry guns. And I just like the little character moments we get with the uh, Marines. I think if we could get some sort of... <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> second director's cut that maybe just took some of the character moments and the sentry guns and then cut the rest, I'd be very happy. Just 15 minutes of Vasquez playing piano. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, do something like Final Cut, like uh, Ridley Scott did with the Blade Runner films. Get some sort of in-between version, I'd be very happy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. As a general rule, I don't care for director's cuts. I find that 9 out of 10 of them uh, tend to be taking a popular movie and trying to squeeze some more money out of it. Right. Um, and every once in a while, there's something okay in there that's worth watching. And and usually that would have been fine to be relegated to a deleted scene special feature on a on a DVD. Right. And so Aliens is a big hit. James Cameron, 
basically is free to do whatever he wants at this point for it, and really for the rest of his life. <laughs> and he chooses his first boat movie. Yeah, you know, he does a little bit of a uncredited rewrite on the movie Alien Nation in 88, and then he jumps on to what would be in many ways his biggest folly. It's his only box office bomb outside of, I don't know, maybe Piranha 2 didn't make money, who knows, but like, his next film would be one that would almost break everyone involved lose money at the box office, and have a really complicated legacy within the realm of James Cameron movies. And that movie is The Abyss. Right. Another Bill Paxton classic. <laughs> He's not in that. <laughs> well, I just I just assume Bill Paxton's in everything that James Cameron does. He was hanging out on set. He was hanging Words out. Words of encouragement. Yeah. Um, no, and, and I'll, have to, I'll have to admit, I, I haven't seen The Abyss in um, several years. I know, I know you have. Well, the problem with The Abyss is James Cameron movies... There's like a couple high-profile ones that have never hit like Blu-ray. He's never done high-def versions of. There is a two, you know a two-disc Abyss DVD, but it's lower quality. And for a James Cameron movie, you want the best-looking motion pictures. Now there is rumblings an Abyss Blu-ray is coming very soon, but yeah, it's one of those weird movies that's just of his that's been kind of relegated to a back burner situation. It's just not out there. It's not on streaming. It's not that easy to find. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to find, but it's not one that's out there present. No one's picking it up on Netflix. No one's getting it on any of their streaming networks. It's not on iTunes, anything like that. You can go to a secondhand DVD store if you want, but even that, like, the, the, the formatting on the DVDs isn't um, anamorphic either, so it doesn't even fit all TVs. So it is a really crappy presentation of a really interesting movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the same videophilia that uh, that you do. Sure. Um, but... Uh... I'm pretty confident that if I wanted to watch The Abyss, I could probably manage to do so in about 15 minutes. I'm sure you could rip something off the net if you really want to. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But I'm saying for people that actually care about watching a good presentation of it, it's impossible. Like, it doesn't exist. And, like, that's that's not good for, like, a movie that's so visually dynamic as The Abyss. Right. So what are your memories of seeing The Abyss? To be honest, I have very little memory of seeing The Abyss. I remember there was some oxygenated jello. Sure, yeah. Uh, and, uh... Who was the star of the Abyss? Who was the actual it's, uh, star? Ed Harrison, Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio. Right, uh, and I, you know, I remember there was a lot of hyperventilating as they go into cold water more often than not, and ultimately some funny-looking aliens that uh, I think they were good. I I can't really recall. It's literally been years since I've seen the Abyss. Sure. Um, I'd like to watch it again. I know that you recently watched the director's cut yeah. in, in preparation for this. Yeah, I had seen the original cut of The Abyss only once. And again, it's interesting. You know, you are a big James Cameron fan. The Abyss is not a movie you've really watched much. Like, why do you think that is? Because it's not Aliens and it's not Terminator 2. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> and yet you watch, uh, you know, Piranha 2 every single week. but <laughs> Twice a week, actually. <laughs> but The Abyss for me was like a movie I watched way back and I enjoyed it and then I just never really had that passion for it and I think the problem is you know you hit it on the kind of maybe unintentionally but you mentioned the aliens and you said are they good or something the problem with the original theatrical cut of the abyss is is that it's very unclear the third act which brings all the alien stuff into focus is very clunky and it's very fast it, it just blurs by and you're like what what just happened oh credits I guess it's over and the director's cut, which has kind of become the preferred version, is, I think, half an hour longer, includes a lot more character stuff, but also expands the entire alien aspect of it in the finale 
by about like 10 extra minutes or something like that. Like it's much more of like a Close Encounters big sort of finale. And I think this movie is really interesting. I think it's often touching greatness. It's an interesting movie as well because it is sounds like one of the worst shoots of all time. The crew I, had I have shirts heard that, that said the yeah. yeah the crew wore shirts that said the abuse on it. <laughs> um, the movie was shot like a lot of it underwater with they had black beads all over the surface of the water, so they were in darkness underwater for like fourteen hour days shooting. The crew was beyond fed up. Um, several of the actors, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio included, will not talk about the movie to this day. And, you know, they had a number of production disasters throughout. Gail Ann Hurd, who he's married to at this point, is the producer on that film. She's basically holding this thing together. Their marriage falls apart really around the time this movie is, you know, going through production. And so it's like, can you just imagine the tensions on this set? Yeah, no kidding. If there's one thing I've learned from... Hollywood production notes or production accounts is that under no condition should you ever agree to be involved in a movie that involves a lot of water. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the abyss continues his trends. You have like this kind of roughneck group who are your underwater specialists. Again, it has that military feel as well as the scientist stuff going on. You've got really dynamic, incredible action scenes. Absolutely phenomenal. Again, I would love to see them in a format that didn't look like crap, and I'm looking forward to that one day. But, I mean, the movie is, in terms of what he achieves, incredible. Um, I still don't think the third act works that well. I think the alien stuff is still, you know, a a rewrite or two away from being really that good, but... I'm not going to lie, in my memory, the abyss constantly gets fogged up with both Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Cocoon. Yeah, you know what? It definitely is inspired, at least by Close Encounters, a lot. It's definitely James Cameron being like, what if I did Close Encounters? Underwater. But underwater. <laughs> and with, like, Marines. Because <laughs> you have Michael Bean in that as a Marine as well, who right. kind of goes a little wacky. It's a really cool movie, and it's one that I think is always going to be struggled with a bit in terms of James Cameron's legacy, because it's so close to being a quintessential James Cameron movie, you know, on par with like your Aliens or your Terminator 2, but it just falls that extra little bit short. And to me, this is where you get a little bit of the criticisms of his writing where James Cameron, uh, when he tries to sometimes go for the profound, it comes across a little bit tinnied, and you get a little bit of that here. But uh, yeah, The Abyss is kind of a box office dud. Uh, it was not opened at a good time of year either. Like You definitely could tell the studio didn't have any faith in this thing. And so what happens after The Abyss, Tony? Uh, he pretty much uh, retires. He goes into retirement between 1989 and 91. Which is a- interesting because and- that's the span of his marriage to Catherine Bigelow. Uh, yeah, and then he is uh, approached by his friend uh, William Wisher, who's got uh, a little project on the go. Yep. Um, by the way, I'm not, I'm not actually sure what the, <laughs> what the chronology is here, but... He leaves the abyss, and anyways, he goes on and he does uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which, um, I mean, we've we've done our podcast on T2, so uh, we won't go into the full uh, production notes here of that movie. Uh, we went in, the, <laughs> in agonizing detail, I think, on that podcast, and uh, recommend that you listen to it. But, I mean, obviously, Terminator 2 is not only a huge hit for James Cameron, it is, I think, the biggest movie of all time at the time it feels like it 
And in many ways, it feels like one of the final of these, you know, there is CG in it, but like it feels like maybe the last of like the grand, grand scale physical action movies. Yeah, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about, um, we talked about it on our, on our previous episode. Obviously some really, really great crew on this with Stan Winston doing the effects and, uh, and, and all sorts of people who are top of their field doing everything. Everyone wants to work with James Cameron at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we went into this again in our Andy, Andy Vanya episode. But yeah, this is, this is like the, the movie where things change for action movies in a lot of ways. It's, um, it definitely pushes action special effects farther than they've ever been pushed before. Um, you know, a couple years later, we get Jurassic Park, which really pushes CG into the new stratosphere. But, you know, maybe Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park, in my mind, are probably the most responsible for the, the CG revolution in, in effects. Yeah, this is really the point. I mean, James Cameron's always been a technophile, but you really get the sense from Terminator 2. I mean, I guess The Abyss as well, because you have the first CG, you know, that CG, like, water tentacle coming through in The Abyss. Yeah which is very much, you know, the, you know, the grandfather or the parent, if you will, of the T-1000. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where you really get the sense of James Cameron being a guy who's always going to push technology forward. Um, and Terminator 2 is really like the big successful portrait of that, where James Cameron is just saying, here's the future of movies. But not only that, here is a slam bang classic movie that you will not forget. And Terminator 2 is a juggernaut of a hit. Hugely influential, beloved. People still are, you know, going to rapturous applause for it to this day. You know, you and I covered it, and we were just astonished at what the movie was delivering. Yeah, it's still so good. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's a movie that I will never get tired of. Uh, it's one that just brings so much to the table. And again, it underscores one of the things that James Cameron is the best at, which is action choreography. And it's something that, you know, obviously it's very present in Terminator and Aliens as well, and The Abyss. But James Cameron has a wonderful, genius understanding of action um, geography. Whenever there's action scenes in a James Cameron movie, you can tell what is going on, where, the relationship between the participants and the environment around them. And he makes it look so seamless. And I, I almost take it for granted. Because you would see a James Cameron movie and you'd be like, well, yeah, that's what action directors should do. And then, and then you, you watch, watch... A, a bad a bad action director and you really get a sense of you you know who's probably gone to film school and has probably Yeah, James uh, Cameron didn't even go to film yeah, school. <laughs> and has probably worked with uh you know as a production assistant on several films and as a second unit director and is finally given their shot as action director. Yeah. Um and it's not very good and you really get an appreciation for just how good James Cameron's direction is. There is literally not a single bad shot in Terminator 2, in, at least in regards to the action sequences. I would, might even argue across the board, but at least in terms of the action sequences. Yeah. And of course, for the purposes of this podcast, it's also where we see James Cameron team up again mm-hmm. with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And um, what I will say, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit before, is that in addition to James Cameron's instincts on how to use camera angles and practical effects and merge those with digital effects he has a spectacular instinct on how to use arnold schwarzenegger 
in this film, similar to what he did in Terminator. Like when to use him uh, so that he's menacing, when to use his more comedic side and uh, is really excellent at just having shots of Schwarzenegger not doing anything except sitting there uh, and being the Terminator uh, to great effect, I think. Yeah, and not only that, but like James Cameron, I think often works best when he's creating iconic characters and actors who have that sort of stature to inhabit those types of roles. Like, you know, Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 as well. Um, obviously Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. But when you look at, say, The Abyss, like Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mestre Antonio are more... They're actor-actors. They aren't these sort of movie star actors. And I think you note that maybe part of the problem with that movie is it doesn't have these big icons in the movie. Whereas this is James Cameron shifting back into that mode and reminding you that like the actors are important. James Cameron's relationship with actors is fraught with peril. And you hear all these stories about actors of him, you know, barking at them and all that sort of thing. But when he works with someone, I think he respects sort of their on-screen image. And that's something that he works very well with in Terminator 2 is presenting Arnold as an icon in every shot. And he knows how to kind of use Arnold. And I think Arnold gives him that freedom to basically be molded by Cameron as well. So, like, to me, this is a perfect situation of a movie star trusting this director to make him look good. And they obviously worked well together because, you know, the next movie that James Cameron does, unless you count the brief uh, foray as executive producer on Point Break. Sure. Um, you know, he goes on, he does True Lies. and uh, yeah. And I mean, there's, and again, we've done a True Lies episode. It was one of our earliest episodes, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you just think about how this movie would have been a pretty lousy movie in the hands of a of a hackneyed director. And the combination of James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger um, with Cameron's technical prowess and... Um, you know, micromanaging directorial style. Have you ever seen behind the scenes footage of him barking at people? Uh, no, I haven't. It's amazing. There's a documentary. <laughs> I'll have to check. There's it a out. documentary on the Abyss DVD called Under Pressure that is like a must watch. They even have a section of him just yelling at people. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and that's one of those things. I mean, I've heard I've heard mixed reviews. Uh, some some actors love him, think he's think he's a genius and are willing to put up with a lot of crap to be yeah. involved with genius. Uh, other actors won't work with him. Yeah. Um, you know, he obviously works with James Horner again now, but they wouldn't yeah. work together for 10 years. Kate Winslet, I think, has said that she wouldn't work with him. She unless, is now, though, on in, Avatar. Yeah, unless they paid her a lot of money. Yeah. So I can only imagine what the payday is on Avatar 2. Um, yeah, and, James Horner sat out the abyss. Again, that's a great relationship. I'm glad that they managed to you know mend those fences Mm -hmm. but i am curious though for you look we we both really enjoy true lies a lot but do you think for james cameron true lies is a bit of a step down i mean this would be among the best films of any director's career but like for james cameron is this a bit of a creative step down well obviously i mean you're going from terminator 2 to to whatever and it's going to be a step down right and i think that's something that every movie director probably who has a great film mm-hmm. has to deal with in their career right mm-hmm. there's not too many directors that can crank out uh, a plus level hits time and time again uh, that being said i mean i think true lies is a great movie it's it's fantastic 
um, you, you know, as far as far as a marital spy action movie <laughs> goes, it's a, definitely a change. It's better than Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It sure is, yeah. yeah. It, it absolutely is. A lot better. Mr. and Mrs. Smith wasn't that bad, but uh, uh, True Lies is is really good. I mean, we've talked about the problems that it has. It's it's a feels a little bit more dated, right? Than especially its gender politics. Yeah, well, then um, then Terminator Two or Aliens does, but part of that is just because it's set in 1994 right. instead of um, being a being a sci-fi film, which. As a general rule, if it, if they're done well, tend to age a little bit better than, uh, you know, a, a contemporary action film. Now, one thing that James Cameron has been criticized a lot of the time, his you know his detractors love to point out, is that he's not you know often considered a very good comedy writer or comedy director. Whereas True Lies is very heavy on the comedy. How did you feel he did as a comedy director? Well, again, I mean it's what I was saying before. You have. Cameron's uh, technical prowess mm-hmm. and directorial ability combined with Schwarzenegger's charisma, uh, and I guess Jamie Lee Curtis's charisma. She's as well. great in that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and he obviously now has some experience working with Schwarzenegger uh, on the Terminator and Terminator Two, and I think at this point he's probably a little bit more comfortable with letting Schwarzenegger be Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And Schwarzenegger's probably a little bit more comfortable at this point, too. My guess is that he probably needed a little bit less direction in terms of his acting. Yeah. And probably was taking direction primarily on the action scenes more than anything else. And for Arnold, this really is, in some ways, his last hurrah. This is his last, like... (laughs) <laughs> massive unqualified smash that everyone loves Arnold for. He would do big movies going forward like Batman and Robin and Terminator 3, but again, they have like a lot of people that weren't so into them. Whereas like True Lies was an unqualified smash movie. And it's really kind of Arnold's last big hurrah and I guess it's kind of fitting it's under under uh, James Cameron. Although Cam I will point out mm-hmm. that I think that um Every movie after True Lies, you've also called Arnold's last hurrah. In different ways. In different ways. I think he referred to Batman and Robin as his last hurrah. Terminator 3, Sixth Day, uh, Collateral Damage. So that's a lot of hurrahs. Well, in different, in the sense of this was his last big blockbuster. This was the last one that was a mega hit. No, I agree with you. But James Cameron wasn't done yet, was he? He wasn't, but, you know, do we want to wrap up the relationship with Arnold? Because obviously that comes to an end really here with True Lies, other than they shoot together the uh, Terminator 2 3D Battle Across Time sequence for Universal Studios. Yeah, which I still haven't seen. It's Um, no longer going anymore, unfortunately. But, like, for the relationship with Arnold, like, what is the career of Arnold without James Cameron? I mean, that's a good question. It's, uh, I've, I've got to believe, I mean, Arnold was a, an action megastar mm-hmm. uh, in a number of different movies uh, that had no involvement with James Cameron. Sure. So I've, I've got to believe that uh, Arnold would have done just fine without the Terminator and without Terminator 2. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if he would be quite as... Uh, Iconic. I mean, what is more iconic than in the action movie world than the the Terminator Two poster, for example? Right. No, one hundred percent. Even that teaser trailer is so amazing mm-hmm. with the uh, the conveyor belt or whatever of all the you know the Terminator molds and then Arnold coming out. Oh, so great! But I guess Arnold's career—he's coming off of Conan the Barbarian, 
And then if Terminator never happens, you're still getting Conan the Destroyer. You're still getting Predator. So you're right. I think Arnold is on a decent track to continue to make these, you know, popular action movies. I just wonder, you know, if you don't make the Terminator, if you don't make some of these showier ones, does he work with Paul Verhoeven in Total Recall or something? Well, that's what I got, I got to wonder. Or would some of these lost projects that we've talked about on, on mm-hmm. previous episodes, uh, you know, does he do the Paul Verhoeven crusade epic? Right, yeah. I think one thing that James Cameron really gave Arnold, though, was like a legitimacy and basically the sense that like this guy is worthy of working with the great directors. Like James Cameron is the first one who really boosts him up. And from that point forward, we really see like, you know, Arnold would work with a lot of great directors after the Terminator, and he would work with the best of the best, which is something that I think, you know, really comes out of that experience with the Terminator. I don't know that he would have gotten that same sort of boost from Predator. Yeah, that's, that might be true. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, really. Uh, I mean, Arnold obviously is a Hollywood force in his own right. Mm-hmm. And uh, put it this way, I think the world is a better place that uh, as a result of James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, getting together and making a robot movie. Okay, well, let's move on. James Cameron takes, you know, quite a few years off after True Lies. At least three years. Well, you know, he uh, he's slightly involved in, in his ex-wife's another post-apocalyptic type movie, Strange Days. Sure. Oh, yeah, that's right. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. I haven't. What is your take on it? It's definitely uh, more of a, a sci-fi thriller than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a good movie. And it's that's a yeah, Catherine Bigelow film. And, uh, yeah, not a big hit uh, with Ray Fiennes and Angela Bassett, right? I think, uh, what's his name, Dennis Miller, I think, was involved in it, too. Okay, okay. Um, I think. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it's a a decent flick to throw on on a Thursday night. Cameron wrote the screenplay for it, or at least co-wrote it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I've heard really interesting things about it, so I I will make sure to check it out soon. I'm kind of embarrassed I haven't seen it. But, um, yeah, and then, you know, he goes into... You know, James Cameron, he's got a history of some uh, pretty rough productions. You know, he has, uh, you know, Terminator 2 was apparently very rough. The the Abyss was a nightmare. Yeah, he decided he wanted to make another water movie. Yeah, and you know, James Cameron, we've seen some water movies in the past with him. And uh, hey, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Uh, how, about a, how about a boat hitting an iceberg? <laughs> um, yeah, he goes on, he does uh, Titanic, which I remember at the time was um, the production of Titanic, uh, which was released in 1997, was just pilloried yeah. in, in the press. Like uh, People were making fun of it months before it was ever released because mm-hmm. it ran way over budget, way over schedule. It was pushed back by about a year or something. The stories from the set were horrible. Do you remember the one where apparently there was like PCP poisoning? On the boat, like James Cameron got infected, and he had like red, like a red eye, like the Terminator. It was something uh, weird like that. Like there was a lot of weird events going on in uh, the, PCP. The, yeah, like angel dust. Yes. Yeah, someone infected like food on the set. Weird. I mean, that would have been a you know that would have been a very manic set. We'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't heard that, but it sounds par for the course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, and you know and. He had a lot of studio execs pretty worried because he spent a lot of money on this. It was More... the most expensive movie of all time. Yeah. Um, but everything turned out okay, didn't it? Yeah. You know, I've had conversations with people the last little bit. Uh, at the time we recorded this, Avengers Endgame has, you know, just come out. We're about three weeks into its release now. 
and it's a mega hit. But like I was talking to someone about how people don't understand, I think now, younger generations now, how inconsequential the hype of that movie is compared to some of the big productions of our past. When you look at like 1989 with Batman, when you look at 1999 with um, The Phantom Menace, like the amount of pop culture awareness for those movies was through the roof. Like everyone was talking about these movies and Titanic is maybe the biggest one of my lifetime. Possibly, although it wasn't that hyped uh, before it came out. Definitely it, not. Like it, if I remember correctly, it it actually didn't do that well in its first weekend. Well, it did okay. It made like I think like twenty one million dollars or something. But it was one of the it was one of the only movies that I can think of that the box office actually increased in subsequent weeks after it was released, basically based on of word word of mouth, and then. You know, I mean, movies these days, they tend to get released like, um, you, you mentioned a movie like Endgame. They get released and their release is, is almost structured to provide it with the biggest opening weekend possible. And so what you will see is just, you know, a jillion consumer dollars poured into a movie in the first weekend. And then it craters. Uh, yeah. And then maybe uh, 70% of that or 60% of that in the second weekend uh and then and then see a later movie you're out of the theater and right. on streaming um i mean titanic had the had the number one spot in the box office for like three and a half months it was unreal yeah like it opened the last week of december or i think it was december 21st something like right around there and it was like number one into like i think april it was crazy i mean it was a uh, lost in space that beat it when it opened i believe in april I mean, 1997, I was, um, I think I was a senior in high school, mm -hmm. uh, or, or, you know. It would have been I, at that transition, right, from 97, we would graduate in 98. So. Or, or I guess in Canada here, we, we just say I was in grade 12. Right, yeah. Um, senior is a very American term. But, you know, I remember people in my school going to see it eight, nine times. Yeah, did you see it in theaters? I saw it in theaters. I saw it with my brother. Okay, and? <laughs> and, um... I mean, I was skeptical because it was particularly, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was a young heartthrob and coming right off of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. So, yeah, 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 and I, I think part of my teenage self felt maybe threatened by that, so I was, I was all set to, uh, you know, really uh, dislike the movie, but I didn't. I actually really liked it. Yeah, I just remember being very indifferent to the movie pre-release, and then the reviews started coming in, and they were like glowing, and I was like, huh. And my family, all of us went with my grandma. So we had three generations of the Smith clan going to see that movie on uh, New Year's Eve of, you know, going into, well, it would have been the, the, the last day of 1997. And we all loved it. And I wanted to go back and see it a second time, but I couldn't convince anyone to go. None of my friends would go. They were, even the ones who hadn't seen it were just like, no, I'm not watching that movie. <laughs> and so it was like okay so i Ooh, you know a lot, of, a lot of contrarian rebels in your oh, friend, yeah. friend circle so lame but ultimately you know it, when it came out on video i bought it and i actually went and saw it um, a handful of years ago when they did a 3d re-release in theaters and you know i gotta say i really do love this movie i think titanic is one of the best you know sweeping melodramas that hollywood has ever cranked out yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, and it holds up too. Like you go back and you watch it, and again, you really see. Um, I mean, it's definitely a different movie from Terminator Two. Yeah. Um, but you you really see James Cameron uh, 
again the the technical aspects of his direction are just are just phenomenal and uh I and the mean, world building the ability to create exactly, an entire yeah. world of the ship yeah so i mean obviously a big hit and then puzzlingly he he just kind of he disappears a little bit doesn't well he? you know after titanic wins like a record number of oscars and he pronounces, I'm king of the world. Yeah, uh, in you know one of the most notorious Oscar speeches of all time. But you look at what Titanic accomplished. It was the biggest hit of all time for a long time until another movie beat it later down the road that maybe James Cameron's affiliated with. Yeah, yeah, but, um, but blue people. It launches DiCaprio and Kate Winslet into the stratosphere. Not so much Billy Zane, unfortunately. Although, you know, Billy Zane's done some fun stuff since. Yeah. Uh, Bill Paxton, once again... Uh, showing up in the future timeline of titanic yeah bill paxton's really fun in that movie <laughs> and you just have this endless series of iconic moments that come out of that movie uh, you know like them on the front of the ship and tons of stuff to do with the sinking and the sinking is one of the most awesome like spectacles i think ever achieved in movies i don't think there's many sequences that can match that yeah it's definitely from a uh, a disaster movie standpoint pretty spectacular and you know i think what again taking it back to james cameron's roots though is that he's meshed this spectacle bigger than just about anything ever screened before with a human story that's fairly simple but works on a you know emotional level for so many people across the world that it's really quite impressive and it does have its clunky lines. I think, you know, you often hear people reference, say, like, the uh, a woman's heart is a uh, deep ocean of secrets. <laughs> Things like that. You know, they're pretty cheesy. But I feel like the cheese just adds to the joy of the movie. It's a movie that I just genuinely, unabashedly love. Yeah, I don't know if I unabashedly love it, but it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good movie. It is for sure. And uh, it's definitely, it's definitely a... Uh... A classic. And, uh, you know, you reference, though, that, uh, you know, he takes a few years off after Titanic. That's also when his, um, you know, he's married to Linda Hamilton from 97 to 99. And they are um, living together before that. But that kind of falls apart again in 1999. And it just seems like he's quiet in those two years. It's interesting. He was like kind of quiet for the two years he's married to Bigelow. Quiet for the couple years he's married to Linda Hamilton as well. And then he marries Susie Amos, who I believe was involved in Titanic. I think she had a yeah. small part on t in Titanic. She was uh, older Rose's daughter. Yeah, so... Um, Susie Amos, star of Firestorm. Was she really in Firestorm? Yeah, she was the female lead in Firestorm. For those of you listening, I know you probably don't care, but uh, Firestorm starring Howie Long was one of the... Uh, biggest box office disasters of all time. But Cam and I were there opening night in an empty theater uh, <laughs> watching Howie Long fight. I think it was William Forsythe. Yep. Uh, and Scott Glenn. And was, was Scott Glenn in that? He was, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, don't feel compelled like you have to go out and watch it. It's just it's just hard for me to... I've got a lot of... i got a real soft spot in my heart for Firestorm. <laughs> um, so, you know, with James Cameron, he's taking some time off after Titanic. He does oversee... Um, the TV series Dark Angel with Jessica Alba. He yeah. did direct the pilot. Um, I never saw that show, did you? No, I, I didn't. Yeah, around this time, he's super into the scientific world of undersea exploration. And I feel like that's where James Cameron is for a long time. <laughs> yeah, he... I think he kind of rides this Titanic wave. Um, and he's been... <laughs> you know no no pun intended but he's been um 
pretty untouchable in Hollywood now since 1984. So he's had, um, you know, 15 years of box office success. He wins a record number of academy awards he's basically and i mean he like so much of what he did in his career he had his fingers in everything in titanic so i think he personally took home what like four oscars or something like that three yeah for editing and directing writing all that not writing a picture picture that's right it actually was not nominated for writing interestingly enough it is interesting. I, forgot, I mean, you couldn't, have, you couldn't have told me. I mean, if someone yeah. would be like, did it get nominated for this? I would have said yes. Um, so, yeah, and I think at this point he, he maybe has been just so involved in the research and production of Titanic. Uh, he now and has now just piles of money. He um, goes on and does a couple documentaries, Ghosts of the Abyss and Aliens of the Deep. I mean... We do know that in the in the meantime, he is still talking to Schwarzenegger, who calls him about uh, doing Terminator 3. Sure. And uh, James Cameron famously tells him, I, I thank you for calling me, but we don't need to do it together. You go ahead and do it, but make sure you get as much money as you can out of these guys. Yeah. And Schwarzenegger takes that advice to heart and goes and gets the most expensive contract in Hollywood history. I believe Cameron said what didn't appeal to him about coming back to do a third Terminator was he just felt like his ability to do that sort of guerrilla-style shooting and kind of that by-the-seat-of-your-pants filming techniques that he did with the first two just wouldn't be allowed anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. it was too big a franchise to do anymore. Right. So he decides to dial it down a little bit, and 2003 does... Uh, Ghost of the Abyss, the uh, Titanic documentary, not which, which, not to be confused with the Terminator documentary. Sure, which we just we just watched Ghosts of the Abyss, Tony. Yeah, we did. We did. We watched Ghosts of the Abyss in preparation of this podcast. Sure. And what were your thoughts? This is a documentary. It features Bill Paxton joining James Cameron to go down and see the Titanic in a submersible, and then you know send some robots down to look at it. Yeah, and so. Put it this way, if you are into the Titanic, it is um, probably interesting. And if you're into... Probably interesting. (laughs) Undersea exploration, it's probably interesting. Um, I, I mean... It's, it's a shame because the movie, I think, was originally filmed in and supposed to be shown in 3D. So maybe we missed something. Unfortunately, an hour of... You know, 90-year-old C-Rec filmed in the um, spectacular lighting of 12,000 feet below sea level is is just not that appealing. There is, um, you know, Bill Paxton and James Cameron and all the scientists involved seemed really, really happy and impressed that they uh, got to do this project. But it's, it's not that interesting viewing. It does not communicate well their passion. Like... Weirdly enough, James Cameron is almost invisible in this documentary. Uh, He pops up on screen, you know, a number of times, but he doesn't seem to have any sort of relationship with the viewer of the documentary. Like, he's very aloof on screen. And Bill Paxton is very much like the voice of the people, the guy who's communicating with the viewer. But he seems to have no energy. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, what I'll say, you know what I found the most disturbing about Ghost of the Abyss? What's that? I mean, you suggested it that we we watch it before we do this podcast. I said, okay. Um, I knew nothing about it. Um, you told me it's a James Cameron documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assumed 
that it was a documentary about the movie The Abyss. <laughs> well, you know, I think these titles of these documentaries are kind of eye-rolling. Because, yes, this one's called Ghosts of the Abyss. And you're like, oh, The Abyss. That was a James Cameron movie. And then the one he does later is called Aliens of the Deep. And you're like, oh, yeah, he did make a movie called Aliens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I haven't seen Aliens of the Deep. Uh, you described it to me. And it sounds um, like something I'm probably not going to pick up anytime soon. Let me put it this way. Aliens of the Deep is less interesting than Ghosts of the Abyss. Ghosts of the Abyss gives you some kind of Titanic backstory stuff. Um, you know, you get to see some of the actual locations that they were recreated in that movie. So... It's interesting in that regard. I just don't think it's particularly energetic or... I feel like the passion that James Cameron has for this project does not come across in the documentary. It's yeah. a little it's a little self-serious. Yeah, I mean, and it's a shame because by all accounts, James Cameron is, um, you know, a, I mean, he genuinely is a bona fide deep sea explorer. I mean, he did the first solo mission to the... Um, Bottom of the Marianas Trench, I think. Yep, that's right. In uh, yeah, in 2012. Yeah, and so, you know, that's not something that just anybody does because it's a hobby. Right. I mean, I mean he clearly has a, a scientific interest and an archaeological interest. Well, in the Titanic wreck itself, and then in deep sea exploration, generally. So, more power to him. Sure. Um, unfortunately, for our purposes, it doesn't really produce that much interesting cinema well you know what not every director is a documentarian and i just don't think documentaries are his strong point because yeah aliens of the deep it's more of a you know about undersea life basically that's the gist of it um but again it's it's far more obsessed with the tech of these submersibles than it is with any of the undersea life yeah and it's pretty dry stuff i talk about it more in the wonders of the sea episode we did so check that episode out if you want to hear more about uh, aliens of the deep but again yeah. And if you, haven't, if you haven't heard of Wonders of the Sea, and there's a good chance of that, that's the uh, undersea documentary narrated by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right, yeah. So, again, I talk about Aliens of the Deep there. Of the two, Ghosts of the Abyss is the more interesting one. But what's interesting is, all during this time where James Cameron's on hiatus, I remember you know reading a lot of film coverage at this point in my life, and I desperately wanted a new James Cameron movie. And all I heard for years was James Cameron had two movies that he was developing. Battle Angel Alita and Project 880. And that one's top secret. And back and forth it would go. Like James Cameron's not sure which one he wants to do. It seemed like Battle Angel Alita was going to be his follow-up to Titanic for a long time. And fans started getting ravenous over that one. Ultimately, he ended up pushing that one aside, and going with Project 880, which became Avatar. That's right. 2009, Avatar comes out. Again, um, like Titanic, huge hit. In fact, it's the first movie to make more money than Titanic <laughs> uh, at the box office. It was the biggest hit of all time until, I believe, 2015 when Star Wars The Force Awakens beat it, or 2016, I think, was when that when Star Wars movie actually crossed it. But... um. It's currently the number one of all, uh, worldwide, but it's about to be beat, I think, by Avengers Endgame. <laughs> yeah, that's looking more and more likely. Who knows, by the time we release this podcast, like, that might be uh, might be ancient history. Which is, in, in some ways, hard to believe. That, uh, that one, that Titanic uh, stood up for uh, 12 years, mm -hmm. and then that uh, Avatar stood up for another 10. 
Yeah, and Avatar was a really interesting movie in that it started the 3D craze that I think people are furious about to this day for having to pay up charges on all their tickets to see movies <laughs> and right. seeing a lot of bad post-converted 3D. Um, but the movie really did grab everyone because you had to see it. It wasn't a question. It was like an exclamation mark. You have to see Avatar. Yeah, I mean, I remember when Avatar was released. I wasn't... Uh, I mean, I remember it. Uh, the hype around it was pretty big, but I wasn't that interested in it. The, to be honest, the um, the character posters and the and the trailers that they were releasing at the time weren't that interesting to me. But word of mouth got to me more yeah. than anything, and people were coming to me and being like, "You have to see this movie. Uh, there's never been anything like it before." It opened to like seventy five million, which again, not like massive numbers but then the second weekend it made like 75 million again and then it just kept doing it it was like titanic all over again yeah and it, and it's true i i did eventually go and see it and you know maybe week two and i hadn't seen anything like it before it was unlike anything i'd ever seen i i had seen some 3d movies before but they were always pretty hokey pretty gimmicky uh i couldn't name a, a decent modern era 3d movie i bet if you ask me before mm -hmm. avatar came out mm -hmm. and then once avatar was out i don't know if you remember this but all of these movies that had release dates their release dates were pushed back like four months yeah and then they were released in 3d <laughs> yes that's true and i remember you and i went and saw alice in wonderland 3d yeah so weird <laughs> but avatar is a movie that i remember i went and saw opening night and I, I, my friend and I were, again, this is so excited. This is the James Cameron, you know, the latest James Cameron movie. And we all walked out being like, oh, it was okay, I guess. And like, I was really wowed by the visuals, but I, I kind of felt a little cold on the movie. And so I went back and saw it maybe like five, six days later. And I walked out again, but like, you know, I really admire the action filmmaking. I think the second half of Avatar is phenomenal like the action direction you know i talked about it earlier james cameron's ability to shoot action is next level incredible and the entire second half of avatar is absolutely amazing but i've always had trouble connecting with the characters of this movie and i sat down the other night and i actually watched the three hour extended cut and i will say something this movie has aged very well like the cg which i thought would look very dated 10 years later didn't it actually still looks very beautiful so i'm impressed in that front that james cameron in 2009 is making cg blockbusters that still hold up because i see cg blockbusters that come out you know last week that look like crap yeah very carnosaury <laughs> yeah exactly and it looks great and um you know again it's like i find the first half of the movie tough to get through because i find the characters very flat in this and this to me is where I can kind of understand maybe the criticisms that James Cameron gets for some of his writing. I feel like when James Cameron tries to be a little bit um, philosophical or a little bit preachy, he gets a little clunky. And that's what I feel like with Avatar in that first half. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't... I know, like, Avatar is one of those movies that I don't... Like, people love to hate Avatar. It's true. They did the same thing to Titanic, though. Yeah, and for that matter, they did the same, they do the same thing with uh, to Dances with Wolves, which now people, I think, genuinely dislike. <laughs> but and and that avatar is frequently compared to yeah um yeah. but uh, oh you know or they call it you know a a, a fern gully with smurfs that sure. kind of, that kind of thing yeah um 
but I had the opposite experience at Avatar. I mean, I went in kind of like ho hum, and I came out and I, I I came out of that movie and I was like, this movie is spectacular. Mm. Um, you know, it and maybe it doesn't seem that spectacular now. Ten years later, I'm kind of wondering how the Avatar sequels are gonna are gonna do because I I I don't know if the world really needs another Avatar movie at this point. Well, there's been a real ongoing debate in the last few years about Avatar's uh, cultural footprint, or lack thereof. Like, you do not hear about Avatar merchandise. I go to a lot of, like, comic book conventions and stuff. I never see anyone cosplaying as Navi or anything like that. There's a real sense that, like, Avatar's impact on pop culture was very small outside of the box office. Well, I did go see a Cirque du Soleil show that That's was based true. on Avatar. Yeah, you saw it? Yeah, I sure did. Oh my god! Okay. I, took, I took my mother to it for her birthday. Podcast exclusive. How was it? <laughs> you know, it was uh, very Avatar-like. Yeah. Um, it's called. Wasn't it called Torok the First Flight? Yeah. So it was like an an Avatar history, basically of uh, you know a bunch of uh, blue-clad gymnasts flipping around and mm-hmm. uh, you know. Bringing the clans together to fly on a giant an- animatronic bird. Yep. Um, you know, as far as the Cirque du Soleil show goes, it was pretty, pretty interesting. Although my uh, my brother and his wife went as well, and uh, I think my my sister in law said it best when she said that was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Avatar, to its credit, is a weird ass movie. It may be one of the nerdiest movies ever put together. <laughs> it's pretty nerdy. You know, it's great to see Sigourney Weaver as as an A-class nerd. Sure. Um, future Schwarzenegger collaborator Sam Worthington yeah. as a grunt-turned-nerd. Yep. Um, Stephen Lang is Ste- really fun as the villain in a role that Schwarzenegger seemed like he might have played if the politics hadn't maybe gotten in the way. Which would have been pretty cool yeah. to see Schwarzenegger. And that would have been, I think, a good move for Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, again, the politics uh, made things a little more challenging. Right, yeah. Avatar's a movie, though, to its credit, I will say, like I touched on earlier, his ability to create a world in a film very cleanly and easily is on genius display in Avatar. Like, the world of Avatar is so simply conveyed that it's nuts. Like, you look at what George Lucas did in those Star Wars prequels, and it's just like you could see how he was getting confused and jumbled, and that world stops making sense at a certain point. Like, the Avatar world is incredibly well set up. The action, again, is incredible. You're gaining that roughneck kind of dynamic again with all, like, the the uh, kind of the mercenaries for hire on that planet. Mm-hmm. You've got him, you know, a character entering this entirely alien world. And again, it all comes across. To me, again, it just comes back to your to your lead characters. Um, I think uh, Zoe Saldana as uh, Natiri is actually really compelling. She's about it for me in terms of the characters that actually pop. And to me, that's actually an interesting issue because i wouldn't say that for any of james cameron's other movies i think he actually usually creates characters that really leap off the screen even if they're not written to be super super dynamic yeah that's true i mean nobody remembers avatar for sam worthington like do you remember his character's name jake sully yeah okay you got it yeah yeah i I only remember it because uh I mean, they they say it about 1,500 times in that movie. It's weirdly not a quotable movie either, other than the ICU. Like, for a movie that was the biggest hit of all time, and worldwide currently is for maybe the next few weeks, um, it's not a movie that spawned any catchphrases, really. You know, I think we can change that. 
Cam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to spend the next... We, I'm going to go into the office tomorrow. Okay. And not, well, which is my second job after this podcast, of sure. course. Um, this one pays the bills. The other y- one's a hobby. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to walk into my boss's office. I'm going to sweep everything off his desk onto the floor. And I'm going to say, you know, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a line in Avatar? <laughs> you watched it the other night. I don't even remember that line. <laughs> <laughs> you know better than me. I remember, I remember, uh, the the Navi, what was her name again? Natiri? Natiri, spending a lot of time saying, I see you, Jake Sully, and you know nothing, Jake Sully. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's about accurate. Yeah. I, I might be misquoting, though. Yeah, Um. so how do you feel about... James Cameron has said he has no interest in making anything other than Avatar movies. Ah, oh, that's baloney. Well, he has spent the last God knows how long putting together Avatars 2, 3, 4, and 5. Which are going to be shot all together and then released one after the other. And it's got a pretty impressive cast at this point. Um, you know, you've got Kate Winslet, Vin Diesel's on board now. Uh, Sigourney Weaver's coming back. And I'm nervous. I'm nervous because James Cameron is a guy who always tops himself. He always cranks out hit after hit. And each one pushing the boundaries. I'm sure that these Avatar sequels are going to look incredible. And do things technologically that's leaps and bounds above what we've seen. But I'm worried about the quality. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm wondering if Cameron's been away from the, you know, from being behind the action movie lens for uh, 10 years now. Yeah. And, you know, I got to wonder, I mean, it, it happens to so many directors. Is, is you know, a... 12 years late Avatar sequel, is that going to be the big expensive misstep Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, is regarded as James Cameron's biggest folly? Is it going to be, is is it going to be an awesome killer movie or is it going to be a career killer? Well, you can't be on top of the world forever. And Mm -hmm. I mean, James Cameron has had an incredible run, better than just about anyone alive. You do wonder. If you say he's putting out two more Avatar movies and making it a trilogy, I'm like, okay, you might be safe. But, like, five is insane. At least from the vantage point we're at now where we're recording this. Like, five Avatar movies sounds like overkill. But you never bet against James Cameron. No. But I'm curious. I mean, I I really hope. I hope that Avatar 2 is to Avatar what Terminator 2 was to the Terminator. And that's an excellent point. Because James Cameron does well with sequels. You have Aliens. He didn't direct the original, obviously. But Aliens is incredible. And uh, Terminator 2 is incredible. I'm hoping he at least understands maybe some of the flaws in Avatar. Even though it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Which he actually lost Best Director and Picture to Catherine Bigelow that year for Hurt Locker. Yeah. Which was always... I remember there was a lot of competition about that. And I remember James Cameron said to the press... Um, she can have a best director, but I want best picture. And it was like, <laughs> oh my god, this guy's incredible. Which but, is which is kind of funny because, um, from what I understand, um, you know, divorce aside, uh, James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow have worked together post divorce, yeah. like Strange Days. It seemed to have an actually decent relationship. Yeah, for sure. But so, he's a difficult guy. He is a difficult guy, right? Yeah. If the reports are to be believed. So, so who knows? It's, um, I mean, it worked for the Terminator, mm-hmm. um, which was seven years after the original. Is it going to work for Avatar 12 years later? It's impossible to say at this point. I'll just say I'm concerned. 
That's all I can say because I feel like the original Avatar didn't set me up, I felt, for something that was really that exciting to continue forward with. Like, had it been a one-shot, I'd be like, well, technologically, it was incredible. Let's see him do something else. So I just hope he can really justify the, I'm sure, <laughs> untold amounts of money that are going to get dumped into these projects. Like, I, I just want it to be a story that at the end of the day I care about. Because I know, you know, if we go right back to the beginning of this podcast, James Cameron saw the movie Star Wars and was inspired to get into movies. Avatar is going to be his Star Wars. So I just hope that when it's all said and done, he turns out with something better than George Lucas did when he went back and did his Star Wars prequels. That's what I hope. Well, exactly. Yeah, I think everyone hopes that. And um, and the jury's out until we see those movies. I mean, uh, I, I have a suspicion, just looking at kind of what's going on on Twitter these days or on social media generally, they, they just released some of the potential names for um, the Avatar sequels. And they've got the the kind of uh, melodramatic working titles you'd expect, you know, the I think the water walkers or the, you know, the, yeah, the, the, I think the seed bearer is my favorite. Yeah. The seed bearer, um, th- that type of thing. And in this day and age, I mean, things are different too. Like we live in a pretty reactive social media age yeah. where even just a, you know, a whiff of bad press can just mothball and kill something. And some of the politics of Avatar, in terms of its like Aboriginal stereotypes, they were a little problematic in 2009. And I'm just curious if they come across even more so going back to that world. I'm very curious to see. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Realistically, I mean, 2021 comes around. He's got my money. Oh, I'll be there for sure. And I, know, I can't say the same thing about 2023, though. We'll, we <laughs> what, will what about 2027 when the yeah, fifth one comes out? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, my understanding is that the fourth and the fifth ones are not actually being made yet. They're kind of right. they're gonna wait and see what how the second and third one do before they throw another 400 million dollars at four and five. But I might be wrong. I've read it's, conflicting reports. It's a James Cameron world. Disney's gonna own Fox now. Disney has built the Avatar land in Disney World. They are invested in Avatar. They're going to want to do this thing. And I mean, I'm curious. But you know what? We do have other James Cameron stuff coming up before we can really talk about Avatar movies. You and I will be reviewing the uh, new Terminator movie, Dark Fate, which he's producing uh, coming up in November. So I'm excited about that. I'm really interested to see what he can do with the Terminator universe. Yeah. I know, and I guess we haven't said anything about the other, the non-808 movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alita. Or, or, or non-880 movie. Yeah, they actually changed the name. It was uh, Battle Angel Alita, but the movie came out. It was called Alita Battle Angel, directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez and, uh, you know, written and produced by James Cameron. Which I, I haven't seen it. I saw the movie and I would say it's not good. Um, but you can understand how James Cameron, using the same material, would have probably built that world in a way that made sense. I found the movie just kind of a jumble. It has some impressive action sequences, but it's pretty dreary and a bit of a slog. It was one that I watched and was like, I don't know that I ever need to see a sequel to this. Uh, you know what? I'll save that one for... Uh... I think you might like it. <laughs> I think you might like... Alita Battle well, Angel. Well, you know, it's not often that you're wrong about the type of schlock that I enjoy <laughs> watching, so I'll take you up on it. Yeah. Okay, so I think that wraps up James Cameron. Until Dark Fate, anyways. Exactly. So, Tony, what are we doing next time? Well, kind of jumping off of James Cameron and 
before we get to Dark Fate when it's released later this year, uh, we're going to be making our way through the entire Terminator filmography. And although it features Arnold only briefly, uh, and debatably whether that's actually Arnold at all or not, we'll sure. talk talk a little bit about that in the in the episode. We're going to be looking at Terminator Salvation. Yeah, McGee's film, which. I saw back in theaters, and I haven't seen since, and I'm excited to revisit it. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it since either. Um, and as much we 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 actually talked about this, we debated as much as I think we'd like to jump from Terminator Three to Terminator Genesis. This being an, an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, uh, I think it would be doing a disservice to the franchise to to skip over that one. And and we just like we we did with our Predator Two and other Predator sequels. Uh, you know, we're going to be taking a look at this movie, both the the movie itself and how it fits into the Terminator mythology, and also to the extent we can, Schwarzenegger is relatively small role in it. For sure. Okay, so you can of course find us on Twitter at ArnieGeddonPod. You can email us at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com. We'd love any reviews you could offer, so please jump on over to whatever podcast app you're using, leave a review for Arnie Geddon. It helps us out immensely, so we can be kings of the world as well. Or just recommend us to your friends. <laughs> that <laughs> or, too. Or don't. You can find me on Twitter, of course, at Cam V is in. Very frustrated that James Cameron movies only start with T or A. Smith. <laughs> you can find me, uh, Tony G. That's Tony like the name, G like the letter, at ArnieGeddon.com. You can also find us direct... From the source at www.arnigeddon.com. Okay, so we'll be back with Terminator Salvation. <laughs>